This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. This episode contains some discussion of sexual impropriety. Parental discretion is advised. In the aftermath of the scandal, as allegations rolled out across weeks and then months, the world was stunned. The Catholic Church, once seen as a safe place for families, for a community, had been a part of a systematic cover-up. Maybe you remember this. In 2002, the Boston Globe broke the story that the Catholic Church had known about sexual predators amongst its priests. When the church discovered the actions of the offending priests, they just shuffled them around, moved them to new parishes. No jail time, no trials. The church tried to hide the story. Now it couldn't. A film about the scandal won Oscars, drawing even more attention and shame to this once revered organization. And not without cause. What should the Catholic Church have done when they found out that priests were molesting children? Well, the answer may seem obvious now. They should have gone to the police, made the community aware, been on alert, excommunicated the offenders. But they didn't. And some of these priests reoffended in other churches. Many people left the faith. But why? Because nobody did anything. They tried to bury the story. Was it out of shame, fear of besmirching the name of the church, or reverence for the men who were supposed to represent Christ on earth? We hate to talk about church discipline for a lot of the same reasons. It might make outsiders look down on us. It'll hurt community bonds, distract from social welfare projects, or alienate those who are being disciplined. But if these terrible incidents with the Catholic Church have taught us anything, it should be that the risks of doing nothing can be too great to ignore. I'm Chris Starin. This is Truce. Now, that was an extreme example. We're going to pull it back just a little bit. Uh, what about other sins? Infidelity, gossip, lust, greed. How do we address those within our local church? God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Along with me for the ride is Jonathan Lehman from Nine Marks. Jonathan Lehman, I work for Nine Marks. I'm the editorial director there. And he's written a book about church discipline. Well, two, actually. The first one I wrote was called Church Discipline, How the Church Protects the Name of Jesus. Two books on a really difficult topic. I don't know who would say, hey, I want to write on that. He's also written on church membership and politics. Well, you know what they, they said? Jonathan, you're really nice. 
And so we think you're the right person to write about this. Like, I think that's a compliment. Okay, church discipline. Right off the bat, before we really get going on the subject, there are a few things we need to keep in mind. A lot of us go to churches where discipline is not regularly practiced. Jonathan had some good advice about that. If you haven't been doing, don't do it. Which may sound strange from a guy who wrote a book encouraging people to practice church discipline. Church discipline is a tough topic and, and, and an even tougher practice, right? It's easy to talk about in a podcast like this, but when you're actually talking to actual Christians in an actual church and they've never done it before, you know, there's a lot of a uh, lot of uh, foundational work you need to get in place first. So if, you know, you go read Matthew 18 and you look, whoa, lo and behold, Jesus is talking about the church discipline. There it is. I'm convicted. I got to go home and do it right now. Well, if you do it next Sunday, you won't have a job, pastor, the following Sunday. See, the congregation may not handle it well. They need to be prepared in advance. You got to make sure people understand the gospel and make sure people understand membership. Hold that thought. We'll talk about membership in just a little while. They need to understand repentance. They need a, there needs to be a culture of discipling and, 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 and personal, quiet, encouraging correction. You know, so if you don't have a culture of discipling and discipline in your church where it's just normal to confess your sins to one another and welcome those kinds of corrections, if that's not your culture, moving to, towards public church discipline will be explosive and, and generally not helpful. Okay, so... All that to say, don't just run off and do this willy-nilly. Discipline should be done slowly. Of course, if there's an issue where someone breaks the law or is aggressive, harassing somebody, contact the police. Talk to legal counsel. Don't mess around with that stuff. What we're talking about is sin that doesn't break the law or endanger the safety of others. Also, church discipline is only for Christians, people who claim the name of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 9-13 I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. From the New American Standard Bible. Now, did you catch that? Don't judge people outside the church. Don't do it. Think of it this way. A burly motorcycle dude walks into your church on a Sunday. He's wearing a Hell's Angels jacket and has a beer in his hand. Maybe his hair is unkempt, it's long. There are holes in his jeans and he uses bad language when he's shaking people's hands. Yet, he wants to know about Jesus. Are you going to tell him to go home and change? Or are you going to share the gospel? Right, you're going to share the gospel. Keep the main thing the main thing. Church discipline is only for people who claim the name of Christ. I don't think you can discipline people who are not members of your church. I don't think you should, I don't think you can discipline to say mere attenders of your church. Uh, you might have to warn your flock against, say, a false teacher or somebody who's divisive, but you can't formally discipline them or remove them from membership if they're not a part of the membership in the first place. So we've got that out of the way. People who claim the name of Christ. Now, who needs church discipline? Uh, me, you, all of us. 
right? So discipline isn't just that big act of excommunication. That, that's sort of the final stage of discipline. Uh, discipline is correcting sin. Look, I'm, I'm justified by faith alone, through grace alone, um, and I'm still a sinner. And I need brothers and sisters in Christ to come to me sometimes and say, Jonathan, you know, the way you spoke in this meeting was was a bit severe, uh, or this thing that you were doing was was a bit selfish. I need, in love, uh, uh, brothers and sisters to to challenge me where where there's uh, as I one heard heard one speaker put it, there's cream cheese on my face and I can't see it, right? And uh, so 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 we all need that. Um, look, if you're not a sinner you're not welcome in my church. You don't need to be there. Our church is for sinners only, okay? Churches are places that are filled with sinners. All of us, you and me, by entering into that church, we're saying, I need help. Well, what does that help look like? Well, the Bible gives us a pretty good outline in Matthew 18. And, and, you know, let me just say this briefly about all three, four steps in Matthew 18. I, I don't understand them to be just like, like, you know, steps for programming a computer or programming your DVD player or whatever, step one, step two, step three, step four. I, I think what they are is, is giving us a sense of how this thing should work. Now, what kinds of sin deserve church discipline? Jonathan Lehman says the sin should be outward, significant, and unrepentant. The sin has to be outward, significant, and unrepentant. Don't go straight to the nuclear option. We all struggle with sin. It's when that struggle becomes pursuit or justification of sin that we get into issues of church discipline. Matthew 18, 15 to 17. Now this is Jesus talking. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector from the New American Standard. Okay, so step one, go to them in private. You know, it should be noted that texting this kind of stuff is a terrible idea. Don't ever text sensitive information, ever. Okay, I think I've made that clear. Ordinarily, you're gonna go directly to them. This, of course, depends on the sin. There are exceptional circumstances. Maybe it's a, a woman who's feeling uh, preyed upon by a certain man, and it, it seems dangerous to go to go to that man. Well, yeah, she might not go directly to that man. And it's all in the approach. And, and you're not going to go with accusations. You're going to go with questions. Um, you know, innocent until proven guilty, in a sense, right? You say, hey, look, I saw this. My impression of that is this. Is that a correct understand uh, impression? Please correct what I what I'm what I'm not understanding correctly. Help me understand. Maybe ask some questions. You're going to push in. Uh, you're going to do that in a spirit of gentleness and love. You're not doing that to vent. You're not doing that to get something off your chest. You're doing it because you want their good. So examine yourself before you even start. Is this out of unjust anger? Am I trying to look holy? Am I making a bigger deal out of this than I need to? Don't go in trying to be that pesky person who loves to find fault with other people. If it's not done out of humility, don't do it at all. So first step, you might say, even before talking to the person, is doing that sort of own heart work on yourself and say, okay, what is my goal here? 
Is it to kick the guy or is it to love the guy? Privacy is important because you don't want to encourage gossip in the name of fake holiness. And don't be that guy who accidentally gossips by asking people to pray for whoever is the offender. Come on, guys. Yeah, and so then, and then you then you go in a spirit, giving a person the benefit of the doubt, asking questions, and and seeing if you can come to a shared understanding of what the problem is, and if you can resolve it, and if you can resolve it, a person repents, or you misunderstood. Great conversation over, discipline done. That's step one. If you've gone through step one and you come out to a resolution, then stop. Awesome. Everyone can go back to their lives. Well, if not, well, Jonathan gave this example. He and a friend were out to lunch. And over lunch one day, it became, it came out in the conversation that he was engaged in a lifestyle of sexual sin. And I had that first conversation. I said, well, you know what the Bible says about this? And he's like, yeah, but God told me he's okay with it. So Jonathan brought in a friend and they sat down with this guy. And it was a repeat of the same thing. Hey, you know what the Bible says? Yeah, I know what the Bible says, but God told me it was okay. At that point, they went to the elders of the church who did their own investigation. See, here's the thing. Accusations of sin are supposed to be confirmed by multiple witnesses. But if he does not listen to you, take one or more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And it's not mob justice. There needs to be evidence. You need to take care, right? Move slowly. And in the same way, Jesus is commending the same sort of slow, methodical, careful, innocent-till-proven guilting process. Have I said this before? I'll say it again. Unless we're talking about something really, really egregious or time-sensitive, move slowly. When you're confronting a person in, in sin, you're not, you're not aiming for their, their, their initial response. It's their kind of 10th response I'm most interested in. You know, their response two weeks later, a month later, I'm most interested, not their response today. Hopefully, this resolves the issue. If so, great. Job done. Forgive. Stay accountable. Move on. Of course, it may not be the end. Then it's on to step three, bringing this before the church. Jonathan continues his example of an unrepentant man caught in sexual sin. The elders then went to the whole congregation at, a, at, a, at a, what we call a members meeting, which is a meeting of just the members. They, they name the sin, the category of the sin, rather. They don't, they don't get into the details. They just say, you know, so-and-so is doing this. Uh, and then they called the congregation to be involved. They said, now, if you, you let me just call him Joe. Uh, now, if you have a relationship with Joe, uh, we'd encourage you to pursue him. If you don't have a relationship with Joe, you know, now's a good time to be praying for him. That the Lord would bring him to repentance. And uh, at our next regularly scheduled members meeting, two months from now, if nothing changes between now and then in Joe's life, and if he doesn't repent of this sin, the elders will return and recommend his removal from membership as an act of excommunication or as an act of discipline. Now, telling the whole congregation may sound harsh, but the alternative could be worse. I mean, think of the gossip. Feelings will be hurt if the elders excommunicate somebody without providing any information. It's not a fun process, and it shouldn't be the chance for people to grandstand. I mean, again, we're all sinners. But sin is what tears us apart from God. It, it's what breaks churches apart. With that in mind, this process should be done humbly. Say Joe doesn't turn away from his sin. That's where things get a little tricky. Remember when I said we come back to that membership thing? Here's Jonathan Lehman. Does that mean we are saying Joe is a non-Christian? Well, no, we don't presume to have Holy Spirit eyes. We don't, we don't presume to have 
the ability to finally say uh, whether or not Joe is a Christian before God. What we are saying is that insofar as by bringing Joe into membership, we affirmed his, his, his profession of faith, we affirmed him as a believer, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we are now removing that affirmation. We're no longer using our corporate credit to uh, make a public declaration on Joe's behalf. The question is the method of discipline. According to Jonathan, excommunication means taking away Joe's church membership. Back to our church, we, 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 we would uh, then remove him from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's table. This is where we get into the controversy. Church membership, as we know it, is not explicitly outlined in the Bible. It's a structure made by mankind, a useful structure, but a man-made one. Uh, true. You don't see membership interviews, membership classes, membership packets. I think all of those are forms that we adopt. I don't know about you, but this stuff makes me nervous. I start thinking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the New Testament and their man-made structures. At the same time, we're surrounded by man-made structures. I mean, the Bible doesn't specifically lay out what a church service looks like, but we gather anyway. There's no youth group in the New Testament. It doesn't say anything about providing childcare, coffee after the service, lighting candles for Advent, or even using crosses as decorations. Many of us wouldn't want to go to a church without those things. So what about hard-nosed people who want to continue sinning and go to church all at the same time? If they're excommunicated in the style of Jonathan Lehman, it just means this. They are no longer affirmed by the church body but they can still keep coming. Well, yeah, we always explain to the church, hey, look, if Joe decides to continue attending on a Sunday morning, this is a public gathering with Christians and non-Christians. Think 1 Corinthians 14. And it, there's no place we'd rather him be than here on Sunday morning sitting under the preaching of the gospel. Nonetheless, he's no longer a member. He's no longer one of us. He's no longer part of our fellowship. He's no longer welcome to the table. Um, and you are too. You're not to interact with him in any way um, that would make him think that he's okay with 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 um, uh, with Jesus. Don't do anything to undermine that. You're not getting together just to hang hang out and talk about football. Uh, instead, you're insofar as you are interacting with Joe, you're calling him to repentance. This guy is not just like a non-Christian friend you hang out with. Instead, when you get together, you continue to talk about repentance. Depending on your denomination, he may not be able to teach Sunday school, vote in congregational meetings, participate in youth groups, sing in the choir, pass the plate, all that stuff hurts if Joe is used to serving. But is it the prescribed method from the Bible? Uh, some say no, that this style of excommunication doesn't have any teeth since the offender continues to be in the church. They pray, they worship, they join us for coffee and donuts for the fellowship hour. Outsiders may still see his or her behavior as being accepted by the local church. You see why this gets complicated. On one hand, Jonathan's method, which he is not alone in, is very workable. It's kind of elegant, actually. I wouldn't be opposed to going to his church or put up much of a stink if mine started doing this. His method cuts out the difficult move of telling someone not to come back at all. It also allows sinners the chance to be under good preaching. Jonathan said, We do not have the authority of the, store, the sword. The state holds the authority of the sword, right? The state can say, you just stole that from the store. I'm literally taking your body and sticking you in prison now. It's, it's a geographic, coercive authority the state has. The church does not have that. 
it has a, a, an authority of declaration. This is the gospel. This is not the gospel. This is a member. This is not a member. That's all the authority we have. So one, I would just, in response to that critique, I would just say, look, we don't have the authority to do otherwise. Being removed from membership can hurt a lot. It doesn't, however, account for verses like 2 Thessalonians 3.6. Now, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the traditions which you receive from us. Or to the command in Matthew 18 that we not even eat with such a person. See, that sounds more like shunning. Well, what do we say then? I mean, church discipline, it's hard. It reminds us that we're all sinners, and when one of our brothers or sisters in Christ comes to us with a concern, we need to be open to it, because that's how we grow. When a church is filled with hypocrites and heretics and looks just like the world, how is that loving to our community? How does that reflect on Christ? Not very well. Discipline is also an important aspect of spiritual growth. Maybe the hardest part of this whole process is that people are tasked with the responsibility. For whatever reason, God has seen fit to have humans helping, correcting, teaching other humans, which sometimes makes discipline look more like a power play. All that to say, God has equipped the church to establish his reputation on earth, to protect new believers, and to set a good example for the community. He hasn't called us to unrighteous anger or getting even, or to slander. What happens in a church, uh, what is associated with a church, changes how non-Christians see the gospel. I mean, if our congregants, or worse yet, our leaders, are corrupt, angry liars, then Christ, out of no fault of his own, will be associated with corruption and lies. And that makes it even harder to do the real work of the church. Special thanks to Jonathan Lehman. You can find more information about his books and articles at ninemarks.org. That's the number nine and then the word marks and a .org. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can leave comments on our Facebook page and find out everything worth knowing about Truce at trucepodcast.com. Truce is a different kind of show. Maybe you've noticed, uh, most Christian podcasts are sermons or chatty conversation pieces. Uh, we strive to produce researched, thoughtful journalism, something kind of new in this world. Now, if you think that's important too, please tell your friends about us and consider throwing a few dollars our way on our website. And we'd really appreciate a positive review on iTunes. It makes a huge difference. Right now, we're working hard to be on the new and noteworthy sections in iTunes, which will get the word out better than any advertising we could ever hope for. That honor is reserved for new podcasts with the most downloads. Perhaps you can help us with that. Download it on your tablet, on your phone, on your computer. Get it. Just get it out there. That's what we really need. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Chris Starin. This is Truce. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.